0: Good morning and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Amy Shepard and I'm here with my co-host Julie Dye. Today we are pleased to host a very special guest. Leonard Rubenstein is a professor of practice at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and core faculty at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. He is the author of Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War Professor Rubenstein's current work includes advancing protection of health facilities, patients, and health workers in situations of conflict, advancing refugee and migrant health and rights, and exploring the ethical responsibilities of health professionals to advance human rights. Welcome to the show, Professor Rubenstein.
1: Uh, I'm delighted to be with you.
0: Professor, we are honored to have you on the podcast. I recall listening to you and your colleagues speak about the Russian invasion of Ukraine back in the spring and was very inspired by your research and comments. Also as a daughter of a Ukrainian immigrant mother, this this was pretty personal for me. You have a long history in health and human rights, especially where healthcare has come under attack in conflict situations. Which you discuss in your book *Perilous Medicine*. Tell us about your background, including your experience in Bosnia in 1996, with a physician struggling to save babies in a medical unit, and any and any other any other thoughts you would want to include.
1: Sure, uh, my work in this area actually began. Uh, in, in Bosnia in the 1990s and actually went there after the war to, uh, look at the human rights issues that, uh, were continuing as the war came to an end. And I heard stories about, uh, what had happened during the war, particularly with respect to attacks on hospitals. And there was one incredibly moving story I learned about, uh, A pediatrician uh, named Esma Sezovich uh, was in a pediatric hospital uh, with a lot of babies in a neonatal uh, unit. And to her shock, she heard that the hospital might be shelled very soon. And she got the children out of the neonatal unit. There were more than 30 of them. And just a few minutes after they got out, the unit was shelled and destroyed. They moved to a the basement of a next-door hospital, uh, and they had to spend the night there. But that hospital was shelled, and they survived. She survived, but there was no heat. There was no supplemental oxygen. There was no water, and nine of the babies died that night. And that started me trying to look into this kind of violence. And over the decades, I traveled to uh, Chechnya and to Gaza and the West Bank, to Afghanistan, to Myanmar. And I saw that this was a very serious and, and really pervasive issue in war that had happened very frequently, but no one was paying attention. The global health community, the human rights community, international diplomacy it was not on anybody's agenda and that has continued recently until that viral photo of the maternity hospital in Mariupol showing a woman on a stretcher about to give birth uh, in front of a hospital just been shelled and this woman later died and that went around the world but until then very few people paid attention. I remember talking to a doctor in Syria where more than 600 attacks on hospitals took place. And he said to me, death has become normal to the rest of the world. And no one is reacting. And that has been the problem. We're hoping, despite the horrors in Ukraine and that the law... Per- prohibits all the kinds of attacks on healthcare uh, that Russia is committing, that the world will start reacting and work to stop these, this kinds of violence.
2: Yeah, you know, it seems like these types of situations, as you've seen through the years, continue. And You know, we've been watching the situation unfold in the Ukraine, and, you know, I think we had all hoped that it would be over sooner than it would be, um, and that you know, Russia would pull out, but that hasn't happened. And so as health communicators, we're very concerned and, you know, want to get the word out about the crisis. But we'd love to know more about what you have heard is happening on the ground in the Ukraine with the medical services and, you know, what support is needed there.
1: In every war, of course, medical services are under strain. Uh, there are traumatic injuries which need attention often are unfamiliar to surgical staff. Uh, people with chronic care need help. Uh, uh, their medications continued. babies are born. And yet in Ukraine, uh, the World Health Organization has documented more than 500 attacks, uh, which is extraordinary in a six-month war. Uh, and the effect of those attacks has been devastating to health services. There have been heroic efforts in, in Ukraine as in Syria by the, the local health community, doctors, nurses, and many, many other health workers to keep services going, to reach people in need but you can imagine with that level of violence the strain on the system is enormous and the the availability of care to people in need including access to care when people can't move because of constant shelling uh, it's just enormous
2: well and you know i think you know as just a layperson watching this i probably think most often about you know, hospitals getting shelled and bombed, but you also brought up that you got to think about people with chronic disease. How are they getting their medicines? You know, how are they getting treated? Are they even able to see doctors because it's so dangerous to go out and about? And so, um, you know, are you aware of any ways that, you know, there's sort of underground support for these people? Or how do people get any access to medical care at all?
1: In Ukraine, it depends where you are. In Russian controlled or occupied areas, we don't know the exact status of healthcare, but we know that supplies are not getting in. We don't know how many people are dying of chronic conditions or or for other reasons, including uh, the kinds of abuses that Russian occupiers are committing against Ukrainian citizens. But throughout the country, wherever there is fighting, it's very difficult to get medical supplies in. So we have a combination of heroic efforts and resilience by the health system and health workers in Ukraine but they're still facing tremendous obstacles. There's been a great humanitarian response in Ukraine as, as international agencies and NGOs have brought medical supplies in, trained the medical staff to deal with complex, traumatic injuries from shelling. Uh, but you can understand that there are still tremendous strains and we don't know how many people have died as a result of those strains. Uh, but uh, it's likely very significant. We also don't know how many people can't access health care because of the war.
0: Professor, in multiple publications, you've discussed Russia's heartless attacks on civilians and hospitals There was hope that with Putin's latest attack on a sovereign nation, countries and international security organizations would come together to mitigate further violence and really prosecute for war crimes. What have we seen thus far?
1: These uh, attacks are not not only heartless, but many of them are war crimes because Going back 150 years, the Geneva Conventions have prohibited attacks on health facilities and health personnel. So we know a lot of these acts are war crimes. And the only good news, and it's not good news about the war, but it's good news about accountability, is that there are investigators looking into these acts for potential war crimes prosecutions. There have already been some national uh, prosecutions, although not involving healthcare, there are investigators from the International Criminal Court uh, looking at these incidents and collecting evidence, and there are NGOs also collecting evidence that could be used in prosecutions in other countries under a principle called universal jurisdiction, which allows any country to prosecute a war criminal or an alleged war criminal, no matter where that. The act took place, so there is an enormous energy going into efforts at accountability in Ukraine, and that's actually new, uh, especially with respect to the attacks on on hospitals and health personnel.
2: What would you like to see happen in terms of accountability? In a perfect world, what what should be done? Um, you know, trying trying people and countries for war crimes, but you know what else specific to attacks on medical facilities would you like to see as part of the um, the retribution, if you will?
1: Uh, well, we want we need to talk about punishment. We also need to talk about diplomatic action to deter these attacks, impose consequences on these attacks. Uh, clearly, we need prosecutions that. To the extent possible, uh, everyone who has committed these acts should be prosecuted, particularly the people who authorized or commanded the attacks, right up to the top. Now, that's difficult. You have to get your hands on the people in order to prosecute them. That can take a long time. But that should be the objective. But that's not the only thing that can be done. We've seen efforts at uh, economic sanctions as a way of deterring behavior uh but we need to make sure there are other there's use of other uh diplomatic uh, and UN mechanisms to make it clear that there will be a price to pay for these kinds of acts
0: that yeah that makes sense for sure you know it, it's stunning to me when um when you you've written about these various UN mechanisms and how they're supposed to name persistent, powerful perpetrators of violence against children and 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 societies, but they're not effective. It's stunning to me that they get away with it. What what's the problem, and why do these rogue, rogue nations escape escape punitive actions?
1: Uh, I think uh, what we need to understand is that many mechanisms have been established in the. Last few decades to try to impose the kinds of consequences I just mentioned, Uh, and some of them are simply naming and shaming, identifying publicly uh, what uh, a perpetrator has done and hold them up to the world, and and yet those perpetrators often have power, and I'll give you an example: Uh, for years in the war in Yemen. Uh, the Saudi-led coalition bombed civilian infrastructure in many hospitals, killed many civilians. In fact, more civilians died in in that war from bombing than from any other source. And in doing so, they the Saudis grossly violated the law. You cannot attack civilians. You have to take measures to pro- protect civilians from harm. But when a one of the UN mechanisms wanted to list Saudi Arabia as a persistent perpetrator of violence against children, the Saudis threatened to withhold funding for humanitarian aid, and the Secretary General of the UN took them off the list. So, here's an example of using the power, the political power, uh, a government has to prevent any form of even modest accountability. Another example involves the United States. In that same war, uh, it was very well known that the Saudis were not taking the precautions to avoid civilian uh, buildings and hospitals, uh, and there was extensive reporting on these violations. But all through that war, the United States, as well as the British government, supplied weapons, even refueling mid-air weapons uh, for their, their for their planes that engage in the bombing, and military advice to the Saudis. And that arms uh, support, military support, especially the arms support, continued despite the. The, the reports and so, what happened was that arms sellers, including the United States, elevated their relationship with the Saudis over their commitment to protect children and others from uh, death and attack, and and so the rules about restricting restricting arms sales to perpetrators of war crimes went by the boards. So those are the problems where political considerations, diplomatic considerations, not only uh, triumph over other policies, but prevent uh, protection of people from death.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that in in your article, I think in Mother Jones, there's just so many nations don't for political reasons don't want to rock the boat or they don't agree with what they're doing these rogue nations are doing but they've got agreements in these other areas and so uh we we shouldn't get involved and it it it's it's really difficult to to you know to understand that and to try to figure out well how do we how do we manage this they are committing atrocities yet they're involved in you know other diplomatic and political um, agreements. So how do we come to terms with all of this? I understand it's a it's it's a complicated problem.
1: It's like other areas in human rights. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's like uh, paraphrasing Frederick Douglass, uh, who said, "Power concedes nothing without a demand." Demand if if there's no political pressure, if there's no social movement to demand protection of healthcare, it won't happen. We saw that over the many years since that original trip I made to Bosnia, it's only in recent years that that there has even been attention to this issue uh, in international forums, including the UN. And it really is up to the public particularly the health community writ large, to make the demand of their own governments and on uh, other governments to use their influence and power. For example, that the United States should use its uh, power to sell arms and their possible termination of those sales to stop the the uh, attacks, or stop fueling, literally fueling the attacks. And that started to happen in the war in Yemen, going back to that uh, example. Yeah. Uh, but what we really need is mobilization of the public, and particularly solidarity in among health workers, the health professions, um, the health industry, to raise their voices and say, this has to stop. And Put the pressure on governments to make it so
0: and I and I would hope that the United States would never be involved in in, in any of of that you know any of that glad handing or you know, I, I I'm not familiar with I, I know other nations you know and also like right now what's going on between relations with Germany and the Ukraine and you know there's there's so much sort of confusion I just hope that the United States maybe I'm being um, you know, idealistic, but I hope it would it would stay above the fray.
1: It, well, the U.S. has a mixed record. It's often been a leader in advocacy for the Geneva Conventions and training of the military forces, but it's also been a perpetrator, and also in the case I mentioned, um, was an enabler, enabler of this kind of violence, and that's why. We have to demand that the government use its power, its policies, its diplomacy to uh, try to stop these atrocities. And it means getting our own house in order, providing some leadership by changing our own military practices, uh, looking, having stronger. Restrictions on arm sales—all uh, those things would make a huge difference.
2: I'd like to go back to something you mentioned uh, a moment ago too um, about you know what what can the medical community do? So what can you know? Amy and I work with the medical industry in the U.S., um, primarily U.S.-based companies, and so what can? The U.S.-based medical industry and also the healthcare workers do in the U.S. to help um, this, you know, crisis um, in Ukraine and other places.
1: Uh, it's actually quite straightforward. The very first thing to do is have solidarity. I mentioned the Syrian physician who said no one's to pay it, Pay attention. Pay attention publicize it, speak out. We look to the media, for example, which makes a huge effort to stand up for journalists who are arrested or kidnapped. There are full-page ads taken out by journalist organizations and media organizations demanding that people be freed. We need the equivalent kind of activity from the health community, and that makes a difference. You might not think it does, but it it puts pressure on, on perpetrators, it puts pressure on other countries to speak out. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to work to put our own house in order, to make sure that, for example, healthcare to people who are enemies, which is protected by the Geneva Conventions, is not criminalized in the United States. Some of that health care is a criminal offense. We need to act to change these laws. And there's no better group than the health community to engage in that kind of work. It means engage with members of Congress, the writing op eds, all the things that, all the activities that are used to influence policy can be used here. And it's been absent, which is so unfortunate. And we see the consequences of that inactivity. And the power of that work is enormous. We've seen that in so many cases where uh, influence can be brought to uh, to be uh, to, to um, stop many of these violations. Not all of them, for sure, but it can have that kind of mobilization and speaking out can make a big difference.
0: Yes, we we agree. And uh, it, Julie and I are using our, our platform, this podcast, to raise the alarm and to get the message out because that's what we do as communicators, um, health communicators, and uh, um, professionals that represent health and, uh, medical, medical technology. Um, it's, it's critical, uh, and also public health. It's critical to, to understand these messages for the publics to understand these messages and to speak with experts, um, to help us convey what's essential, um, so we we thank you very much, Professor, for your thoughts, for your analysis, and we hope this will do some good. Hopefully, we'll, this will inspire our audience to get involved and to you know somehow make make a difference in the way that they that they can do so. So thank you so much for your thoughts,
1: and and thank you for raising the alarm uh, in this among this community. It's so important that you're doing this, and I very much appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you again. And thank you to our listeners. And um, we hope everybody enjoyed this discussion.